We're going to talk about a fun subject. We're going to talk about adultery. So let's make it real short. The Bible says, thou shalt not commit adultery. So let's pray and we'll go home. It's kind of like, what part of no do you not understand? But like many of the commandments, I think we don't understand what it means and we don't understand the implications of it or what happens in our life when we are not honoring what God has made sacred. And when you hear that, when we're not honoring what God has made sacred. So we found a little video uh, and uh, in, in, uh, I don't know how you feel about this guy, but his description of the subject of adultery and the effects of it, not only in our life, but in our culture, are quite remarkable. So I want you to watch this. It's by a guy named Dennis Prager. And so uh, some of you may go, I don't like him. Don't look at him. Listen to what he says, because what he says is true. I think you'll enjoy this. I don't know if you'll enjoy it, but you'll understand better when we're done. There's an old joke about the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and announces, I have good news and bad news. The good news is that I got him down to 10. <laughs> the bad news is that adultery stays. The joke is telling. The prohibition on a married person having sexual relations with anyone except his or her spouse may be for many people the most consistently difficult of the Ten Commandments to observe. The reasons shouldn't be hard to guess. One is the enormous power of the sex drive. It can be very hard to keep in check for the entirety of one's marriage, especially when an attractive outsider makes him or herself sexually or romantically available. Another reason is the human desire to love and be loved. For normal people, there is no more powerful emotion than love, if one falls in love with someone while married, it takes great effort not to commit adultery with that person. And if we add in the unfortunate circumstance of a loveless marriage, adultery becomes even more difficult to resist. That's why the joke with which I began is funny, because it reflects truth. Why is adultery prohibited in the Ten Commandments? Because, like the other nine, it is indispensable to forming and maintaining higher civilization. Adultery threatens the very building block of the civilization that the Ten Commandments seeks to create. That building block is the family, a married father and mother and their children. Anything that threatens the family unit is prohibited in the Bible. Adultery is one example. Not honoring one's father and mother is another. And the prohibition on injecting any sexuality into the family unit, incest, is a third example. Why is the family so important? Because without it, social stability is impossible. Because without it, the passing on of society's values from generation to generation is impossible. Because commitment to a wife and children makes men more responsible and mature. Because more than anything else, family meets most women's deepest emotional and material needs. And nothing comes close to the family in giving children a secure and stable childhood. And why does adultery threaten the family? The most obvious reason is that sex with someone other than one spouse can all too easily lead to either or both spouses leaving the marriage. Adultery should not automatically lead to divorce, but it often does. 
There is another reason adultery can destroy a family. It can lead to pregnancy and then to the birth of a child. That child will, in almost all cases, start out life with no family, meaning no father and mother married to each other to call his or her own. And if adultery doesn't destroy a family, it almost always does terrible harm to a marriage. Aside from the sense of betrayal and loss of trust that it causes, it means that the adulterous partner lives a fraudulent life. When a husband or wife is having sex with someone other than their spouse, their thoughts are constantly about that other person and about how to deceive their spouse. The life of deception that an adulterous affair necessarily entails inevitably damages a marriage, even if the betrayed spouse is unaware of the affair. Finally, the commandment prohibiting adultery doesn't come with an asterisk saying that adultery is okay if both spouses agree to it. <laughs> spouses who have extramarital sex with the permission of their husband or wife yeah. may not necessarily be hurting their spouse's feelings but they are still harming the institution of marriage. And protecting the family, not protecting spouses from emotional pain, is the reason for the commandment. Many marriages, sadly, are troubled. And it is not for any of us to stand in judgment of others' behavior in this realm. No one knows what goes on in anyone else's marriage. And if we did, we might often well understand why one or the other sought love outside the marriage. But no higher civilization can be made or can endure that condones adultery. That is why it is prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Get it? Let, let me just remind you again, and I really believe this, I think sometimes we have a mindset that says God wrote these laws because he wanted to us, prohibit us from uh, enjoying life. It's not true. I mean, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. And every law that God established was established to advance our lives, to promote life, to allow us understand the necessity or what an abundant life looks like. And so when we look at these commandments, um, I want to remind you that the reason God gave us these guidelines is because he was protecting us from the harm that not honoring these commandments would produce not only in our life, but in the lives of other people. And, and, and this one is so important. It is so very important. When, when God said, you shall not commit adultery, he basically was saying to us that uh, we should not be involved in um, sins that we commit against another person, but we also need to be mindful of the fact that when we commit the sin of adultery, basically we are sinning against our own bodies, is what the scripture says, and we'll look at that in a few moments. And um, therefore, because as followers of Christ, particularly those of us who are followers of Christ, because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. you the Holy Spirit, that is where the Holy Spirit abides, is where he lives. And because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, 
our bodies and our souls, and because God wants our, his temple to be kept clean and holy, God forbids us from all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite one's, someone to those particular thoughts. When you look at what Jesus says about this in Matthew 5, he actually goes a little further because there are probably people in the room who, in a physical sense, have been faithful to honor this commandment. But when Jesus dealt with this issue in Matthew 5, much like he dealt with the issue of murder last week, he took it away from just a physical activity and he made it a, a, a condition of the heart. And here's what he says in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with, a lustful, with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, we, we need to understand the New Testament does not eliminate the moral laws of God. In fact, when you look at what God's expectations of us are, is God expects us even to go further. Now, many of you are, are, may find yourselves in a place where you have honored God in the physical act of this, but in reality, when we understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, we're all guilty. We're all guilty. The question is, what do we do? Because the reality is, God wants us to live lives with a a heart and a spirit of purity. He wants us to, to be able to look at the world the way he would look at the world, to, to see people the way he would see people. And so I want us this morning to look, if we can, over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. And, and in this passage of Scripture, I think we'll find some steps that, that bring us to what purity is and then give us the steps and tools that we need to be able to, to control the impurity that does, if we're honest, plague our hearts. And so we're going to look at this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and, and I wasn't going to do this, but I, I just felt led this morning to do it over in the children's service. So let me just uh, read it for you and you just listen because it's not going to be up on the screen. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If not, just listen in. And let me read to you what the Apostle Paul says about this subject. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now stop there. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, if you hear that correctly and you stop there, you're going to think I'm in a heap of trouble. Because I'm not righteous. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. Every one of us have violated the laws of God. Every one of us is guilty. But he goes on to say, do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. As such were some of you, he says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Then he goes on, for those of you who that is true, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I think I lost my place here. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy 
both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will raise us up in his, by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Hear that. As a follower of Christ, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God, glorify God in your bodies. In this passage of scripture, and I know this is a tough subject, and it's really not easy for me to talk about because I grew up in the era where we didn't use the word sex in church. You guys remember that? In fact, I'm a little comfortable talking about it right now. But the reality is we have to recognize that this is a big issue in our life and it's something that we have to deal with correctly. In fact, many of us need to be corrected in the way we think about this particular subject. And so looking at this passage of Scripture, I want to give you four steps for living in the purity of Christ. Really, that's what I want you to see. I want you to see how you live in the purity of Christ. The first thing I think Paul tells us to do in this passage, in fact, he tells us four times in this passage, he says, if you're going to live in purity, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to change the way you think. You need to reset your mind. You need to reset your mind. Now, remember, Paul is preaching to the church at Corinth. And Corinth was a sexually perverted culture. A very sexually perverted culture is what they were. And many people had gotten saved. In fact, we read a minute ago, such as this were some of you. In other words, some of you were dealing with this issue in your life. You just practiced. It was just part of the culture. So much so that even in their religious activities, they would go to, to, to the temples. And as a religious act, they would perform acts of sex with prost temple prostitutes is what they would do. And so when they come to Christ, God's got to change the way they think. He's got to change their attitude. He's got to change their mindset about the whole issue of human sexuality. And so four times in this passage of Scripture, he uses these words. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? In other words, Paul's saying, look, if you're going to get this right, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to bring your mind into alignment with what God says about this subject. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we live in a pretty sexually perverted world, don't we? We really do. I mean, everywhere you look, everywhere you go, and the world is telling you it's okay. Everything is fine. But you and I need to know that from God's perspective, what God says about human sexuality is more important than what you or I or any other culture would think. So what do I need to do? I need to bring my mind into agreement with what God says. It's what he says in Romans 12. Romans 12 on your, on your outline says this. He says, we're not to be conformed to the world. Don't let the world squeeze you into its way of thinking. Literally, that's what it means. Don't be conformed by the world. But then he says, but be transformed 
to be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the, the way for my life to change with regard to any subject, but the way for my mind to change, my life to change, the way I perceive sexuality is to, to begin to understand, here's what God says about this subject, and I want to change the way I think about it. I want to bring my mind into agreement with God's mind on this subject. Now, some of you uh, might remember, some of you don't remember, some of you weren't here. A, few, a couple of years ago, we used uh, these things called the three circles. You guys remember, how many of you remember three circles? Anybody remember what the three circles were? Kind of like the Ten Commandments. I asked you, do you agree with the Ten Commandments? Yes. Well, tell me what they are. Well, I don't know them. I just agree with them. Okay, the three circles, and by the way, the three circles aren't as important as the Ten Commandments, okay? But the three circles basically were these. The first circle, and this was really a, 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 a skill we taught you to help you learn how to have dialogue with people. But the first circle was what we, call, we called God's design. God had a design for everything he made, didn't he? The end of everything God did at the end of the day, in most cases, what did he say? It's good. It's good. The end of the sixth day, after he created humans and gave them instructions, he didn't just say it was good. He said it was what? It was very good. You see, God, has a, God designed the world. God designed everything in our world. Do you know, just get this, do you know the first being to ever think about sex was God? We don't think about it. We go, oh, God wouldn't think about sex. Well, where did it come from? And God had a purpose. It was God's design. You see, God has a design for everything in our life. And God designed human sexuality. And he didn't design it to restrict our lives. He designed it to protect us from violating the design that God created, but you and I tend to think sometimes we know better than God. Anybody ever think you know better than God? Now you'd say, oh, not me. Well, then why are you doing that? And when we violate the design of God, of course, the Bible calls that sin. And how do you know something's sin? The second circle was what? Anybody remember? It's the word brokenness. Anybody remember that? How do you know something's uh, being used improperly? Because it doesn't maintain or fix things, it breaks them. That's what it does. It breaks them. And by the way, if you don't think we don't live in a world where there's sexual brokenness, you need to wake up and smell the coffee. It's much of what he said in that video, isn't it? Now, the human nature says, okay, if it's broken, we will fix it. And so we come up with all sorts of ways to fix it. We can use philosophy, we can use science, we can use religion. We use all sorts of things because we're somehow going to fix all the brokenness in our life. Well, let me ask you a question. Every time you try to fix the things that are broken in your life, do they get better or do they really get worse? 
Because see, the only way to fix it is for you and I to go back and rediscover God's design. Here's the problem. The problem is in our best of days, because we are sinners by nature, we can't fix and go back to the design. Therefore, the third circle is this thing we call the gospel. The gospel is the good news. God did for us in the person of Jesus Christ what we could never do with ourselves. But you see, the problem in our sinfulness is that we're separated from God. And the only way to go back to God's design is to go back to the God who designed it. And the only way to come back into a relationship with God is not through your own self-righteousness, through your own works. The only way to come back into a right relationship with God is through what God has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. When he died, he was buried, and he rose again. And when we do that, something happens in us. And God empowers us to bring our lives back into alignment with what he has for our life. And so we've got to understand those things. Now, here's this. You're not just going to will right into your life. It takes something outside of you to change the way you think. Well, how does it work? Well, number two is when we begin our minds right, then we begin to restrict the way we use our bodies or we restrict, restrict our bodies. Can you imagine what it would be like if, if every one of us acted physically on everything we felt like doing. Can you imagine? So at some point, we have these restrictions. Now, from just a cultural standpoint, from a world standpoint, the world has a conscience. I mean, the world has a conscience, and even people who are not walking with God have some sense of conscience in their life, and what it does is establishes some parameters for their life. But I want you to understand something. When you come into a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, you don't just have a conscience. You have a supercharged conscience because it's not your conscience that's prohibiting you from doing those things. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, left to ourselves, we do what we want to do. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 7, 24, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I mean, he felt those urges. He felt those desires. In verses 9 through 10, in chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that the, right, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, people say, but, but, but we struggle with those things. But there's a difference in struggling with them and them being my identity. If you tell me that's what you are, then that's an identity issue. And the problem is not just the behavior that we commit is that sometimes, and most times, if we're honest, our, our, our behavior becomes our identity. We, we say, well, I'm, 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 I'm heterosexual. No. That's not your identity. That may be a physical attribute in your life. You are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Your identity is who you are in Christ. The truth is, I think probably we might be described at some point in our life at some time by any one of these things. 
but as a follower of Christ, those may be things I struggle with, but they're not who I am. So much so that Paul wrote it this way. He says, as a follower of Christ, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he was joined to a prostitute, become one in body with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. You see, here's the problem in our culture. And here's one of the things we, 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 we tend to do. We begin to look at human sexuality like we look at food. If I'm hungry, what do I do? I just go get something to eat. And I just satisfy my hunger. Well, that's not sexuality. You know, what, you know why God, when God created human sexuality, the re, God created sex as a sacred thing. Do you know that sex, sex is the only activity that happens between a man and woman that is picturesque of a covenant that God established between you and him? That's what it says. You see, sexuality is, is, is a sacred thing. It's a sacred gift that God has granted to us. It's, it's not just like food that we kind of eat and consume and then... <laughs> so much so that he said, look, so you join with Christ and then you go see a prostitute? You see, there's something sacred about it. There's a covenant relationship. And here's what he says, literally. When you join yourself sexually in another person, whether you realize it or not, you are entering into a covenant with them. That's why you can't get it out of your brain. I don't remember what I ate last week. And you see, there's a sacredness about this. And please hear me, young people, those of you who are in this room, please hear me. God's not trying to restrict your life. He's trying to protect your life. You know, if you take, God intended in, in, in God's design, it was one man and one woman for life. Right? Am I right? That was God's design. And when you become careless with that, it's like tape. If I took two pieces of tape and I stuck them together and I ripped them apart, I could stick them back together, but it's easier to rip them apart. And I can stick them back together again, but it's easier to rip them apart. And you lose the sacredness of covenant relationship. It is a covenant relationship. It is the only relationship that's confirmed, and I don't mean to make you sick before lunch, in the issuing of blood. You see, it's a sacred gift of God. And yes, it was designed for pleasure, but it was so much more than that. It's a picture of the covenant we have. You say, well, how do I do this? Well, you're going to have to redirect your spirit. Redirect your spirit. Well, how do I do that? 
The truth is you don't. The Holy Spirit does this. Something has to happen in us that engages his spirit in us with this particular issue. That's why he says in 19 and 20, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So here's the challenge for believers. Please hear me. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, your mentality is, I can do whatever I want with this body. And sure, you might have some guilty conscience. You might have some things like that. But boy, when you give your life to Christ, or more importantly, when God invades your soul, and that's what happens literally, when the Holy Spirit invades your soul, he takes over you. And now you struggle. There's this struggle that you feel because it's not like your fleshly desires go away. Anybody here not been hungry since you got saved? It's not like it goes away. But now as a follower of Christ, what I've got to do is I've got to, I've got to shrink my spirit to a point that I allow the Holy Spirit. I've got to shrink my flesh, excuse me, to a point that I now begin to allow the Holy Spirit who dwells in me to take over control of this particular area of my life. Paul said it this way. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For, the, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind is not, that is not set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't do it. In other words, if you don't have Christ, then you can't submit to the laws of God. But if you have Christ in you, you should be able to submit to the laws of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. In fact... If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in anyone, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There you go. Come back to righteousness. Where does that righteousness come from? It's not self-righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes to us through the invasion of the Holy Spirit in our life. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Now, please get this. This is so cool to me. You say, well, I, I, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. No, you can't. But the Holy Spirit can. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit of God that lives in your heart. If Jesus, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, you telling me he can't deal with these passions in your life? And here's the thing about purity. Purity is never behavioral in our point. It's something we receive because we receive the grace of God in our life. And here's what the resurrection teaches us. The resurrection teaches us that there's nothing ever so dead in your life that God can't bring it back to life. And you know why this is a hard sermon and it's so quiet in here? Because we're all guilty. And some of you have given up on the idea that somehow God can purify your soul. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, you don't think for a moment he can't cleanse your heart. But it's when we begin as individuals 
to redirect our spirits. And instead of just living by our flesh and seeing human beings as food, we begin to see the value God has provided for us and created in us as human beings. You say, Jim, what if I failed? Well, join the church. Because we've all failed. Because the last one is really important to me. We're going to go back up in the text, but it's really this. If this ever becomes a reality for every one of us, it comes because we learn to rely on God's forgiveness. We learn to rely on God's forgiveness. You see, every person in this room has failed in keeping this commandment. If we're honest, we've even violated it since we came to Christ. After listing the behaviors that condemn us in verse 10, Paul says these words, and as such were some of you. And then he says these words. I think these words. Please hear these words. I, I want you to hear this this morning. He says, but you were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Think about that. You were washed. You were washed. You ever felt dirty? I went out and mowed my yard yesterday and I came in the house and one of the females in my house said, You stink. So I let him smell it a while. <laughs> I wanted them to know I'd worked in the yard. But before long, I started smelling myself. And so you know what I did? I took a shower. And I was washed. Have you ever been washed by Jesus? Have you been to Jesus... For the cleansing blood, have you, have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? See, we don't talk about that a lot in church. People say, we won't talk about blood in church. You know what the Bible says? Without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sin. And because Jesus died on the cross, here's the cool thing. He washes you, and you're, you're just clean. You see, we've all failed at this one, so what do I need? Well, first thing to do is just let Jesus give you a bath. You know what the Bible says? If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. Forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You were washed, you were sanctified. You know what that means? It means you were set apart. You're not like everybody else. Sometimes you might act that way, but you're not like everybody else. Because you were set apart by the Holy Spirit. That's why he says in this passage of Scripture, you're not your own. You've been purchased with a price. Therefore, now glorify God in your body. Let God set you apart to be different, not like everybody else. That's not easy because everybody else wants you to be like them. I remember one time someone was teasing my niece because she had never had sex. And she looked at them one day and said, I want you to know what you have. I can have any time I want. What I have, you will never have again. 
but we're set apart. Why do you want to be like everybody else? And then you're justified. You're declared righteous before God. Isn't that so cool? One day, in fact, right now, but one day, I'm going to stand before the God of the universe and because of Christ, not because of me, but because of Christ and Christ alone. Jesus is going to declare me righteous before the Father. And he's going to say, you know what? He's one of ours. And he's going to impute unto me. That means he's going to put on me his righteousness. You see, when you read in Revelation, those things like dressed in white. You remember that? We're all going to be dressed in white. That is picturesque of the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Guys, I don't care what you've done in the past. When you come to God honestly in the present and you sincerely trust Jesus, you don't have to live in condemnation. And purity is possible when we come to the person of Christ. Let me read this text and we'll close. It's in Romans 6. Paul addresses this issue and he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then he says these words, For sin will no longer have dominion over you, since you are not under the law, you are under grace. You ever mess up? You know, I noticed last week when we were talking to murder, you could look around and talk to people. We talk about adultery, everybody's like this. <laughs> Don't look over there. But you know what's so cool? And this is so cool to me. When we come to Jesus, when we come to Jesus, 
we can look at one another in the eyes. And here's why. Because in Christ, we are the righteousness of God in Christ. Let me challenge you to let this speak to your heart this week. Maybe you're one of those who thinks, yeah, but I have failed miserably. It don't make any difference. I mean, how dare you think that anything you've done is greater than what Jesus did on the cross? And here's the cool thing about it. The Bible says God separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And it's no longer to, rem never, no longer to be remembered against us. You know why he said east and west? Anybody ever wonder why he didn't say he separates our sin as far as the north is from the south? Anybody wonder why? Because when you start west, you're always going west. You start east, you're always going east. You can only go north so far. And then you're going to turn and go south. And the cool thing about Jesus is the Bible says he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And it's no longer remembered against us. He cast our sin into the deepest parts of the ocean. And then he puts up a sign that says, no fishing. And he sets us free by his grace Father thank you for your word I know sometimes it's a hard word sometimes it makes us uncomfortable but God thank you that your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword and I pray this morning that as we um, as we walk with you that we would honor the Holy Spirit in us and that God the Spirit that's in us would as you said in the Old Testament take out the heart of stone and put on a heart of flesh and, and God take the laws that are outside of us and put them in us so that we desire to walk in them and Father maybe there's someone here today and honestly they've never really 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 given their life to Jesus and they may feel a little anger right now about this subject. Or maybe they feel some conviction. Father, help them to know this morning that the conviction of the Holy Spirit is not meant to condemn us. It's to bring us out of condemnation into life. I'm so excited that your word says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, the rest of the verse is so cool too. It says the son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes is not condemned, but he that does not believe is condemned already because he refuses to believe in the name of Jesus. Father, thank you for a name that's above every name. Father, I pray this morning that maybe, just maybe, someone in this room at this moment is simply saying, God, I've known about you all my life, but I've never really accepted you in my heart and allowed you to forgive my sin. 
become the boss of my life, the Lord of my life. And God, maybe this morning, somebody in this room just needs to cry out to you and just say, Father, forgive me. And today, receive the absolute forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. You're a great God and you change our lives. Father, for Christians who may be struggling with this, maybe it's pornography. It may just be, uh, it may be adultery. It could be any number of things. God, I just pray this, this morning that your Holy Spirit would give us hope we'd escape condemnation and we'd come to the life that is provided through the Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead and has the ability to bring life to our dead hearts I pray for the healing of marriages God, I pray that, that marriages in this room would find hope. Thank you, God. We commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, I pray.